Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the book of Judges, chapter 14. Hear now the word of our God, Judges, chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion, and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went, and he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate, but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought thirty companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people, and the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, and struck down thirty men of the town, and took their spoil, and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. After some days, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat, and he said, I will go in to my wife in the chamber. But... Her father would not allow him to go in, and her father said, I, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. 
So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so have I done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck a thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramathlehi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore the name of it was called en Hakore. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines twenty years. This is the word of the Lord. There's a way in which Samson is the most gifted judge in the whole book. He's called from the womb. He's empowered with extraordinary gifts by the Spirit of the Lord. And yet, in another way, he accomplishes less than any other judge in the book. He has these magnificent individual victories. But he never finishes the job. He begins to defeat the Philistines as the angel had spoken. But he never leads Israel to triumph. Now, there's a way in which this, these two chapters tell one story. And, and the key to the story is that there at the beginning in verse 4 of chapter 14. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. As we saw last time, the spirit of the Lord was stirring in Samson, even though it takes some rather odd shapes. In a sense, you could say this is an illustration of the point we saw from Paul this morning, that the reality of the Spirit's work in Samson is very clear. His understanding of it? Not always very clear at all. His experience of it does not seem to lead him to holiness of life very clearly. 
And yet, the reality of the Spirit's work in him is very clear. It, there's a way in which, when you, you think about the reality of what God has done in Jesus, in uniting us to himself and joining us to his Son, this is the reality of who we are in Christ. Our understanding of it may often fall short. Our experience of it may not always be what it should be. But the reality is very clear in what God has said. And now, in Samson's case, this happens to be very visibly and outwardly obvious. Although, I will, I'd like to correct one misimpression that we have of Samson. Oftentimes, the way Samson is portrayed in pictures is this big, burly guy. The thing is, now, as we'll see in our text tonight and then next week as well, the things Samson does, I don't care how strong you are, you can't do that. It's not muscles that give Samson his strength. For all we know, Samson could have been a scrawny guy. There's nothing, there's nothing in the text that says he was a big burly guy. The source of his strength is the Spirit of God. So that's where, just to be clear, Samson, you don't, you don't necessarily have to have this big burly picture in your head. Samson is equipped by the Spirit of God to do these mighty deeds. Now, for one in whom the Spirit of the Lord is stirring, Samson does not appear to be a very good role model. Uh, he, our text begins with him uh, seeing this Philistine gal and telling his parents, get her for me as my wife. Now, Manoah and his wife could not be very pleased. Their response in verse 3 makes it clear they don't think much of his choice. Isn't there somebody among your you know, family, daughters of your relatives, among all our people, that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Uh, in a couple chapters, we're going to start see, hearing this as the refrain of the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Well, Samson illustrates the problem. This makes us think that Samson may be completely unaware of the Spirit's moving. His interactions with the Philistines, at least at the beginning, appear to be entirely selfish. But God's purposes are different. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. For the Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Israel is living at ease under Philistine oppression. As we saw last time, there's nobody crying out to the Lord for deliverance. The seed of the woman is willing to yield authority to the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman refuses to live as the Son of God. The seed of Abraham has subjected itself to this Philistine rule without complaint. And so God will use this comfortable status quo in order to upset the status quo. Samson, this selfish young man intent on his own pleasure, will unwittingly become the agent of God's judgment. Or is it entirely unwitting? Because as the story unfolds, you start to wonder how much of this was Samson actually planning. Samson and his parents go down to Timnah to meet the woman. Now, the phrase, go down, is used five times in this chapter, four times to refer to Samson or his father going down to Timnah, and once to refer to Samson going down to Ashkelon. 
part of this is simply that uh, they, he lives in the hill country of Judah. And so to go down to the coastal plain, you go down. It's just a geographic reference. Going down from Judah, which is, uh, at this point, the Danites, the Danites' inheritance was supposed to be the coastal plain where the Philistines are living. And so the Danites are sort of cramped up into the hill country of Judah looking for a, a way to get down to get their, their territory and not finding much of a way down. So Samson and his parents go down to meet the woman at Timnah. Apparently Samson and his parents are not walking together because he's alone when this lion comes roaring towards him. And he's, he's at the vineyards of Timnah. He's at the vineyards. Remember, he's a Nazarite. He's forbidden to eat any product of the grape. So there's a little foreshadowing here. What's he doing in a vineyard? But it's here that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, not just came upon him, not just filled him, but rushed upon him. The Spirit of God infuses Samson with superhuman strength and he tears the lion apart like you'd tear apart a young goat. And he continues his journey, doesn't tell his parents. Perhaps he's, you know, this is the first time the Spirit has rushed upon him. He just tore a lion in pieces with his bare hands. Who's going to believe him? And so he goes down and talks with the woman, and she's right in Samson's eyes. So the wedding is arranged, and some days later he returns to marry her, and he finds a, a honeycomb in the carcass of the lion. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the practices of bees, but uh, bees don't ordinarily inhabit cadavers. That's a, you, you might find flies and maggots, you know, all nasty stuff. You don't usually find bees put honeycombs. This, this is plainly a divine sign going on here. And yet Samson fails the test. I mean, he, he touches the cadaver, something forbidden to a Nazarite, and he eats something unclean because contact with a dead animal would render anything unclean. So this honey is contaminated, which he then offers the unclean food to his parents. They had consecrated him to be a Nazarite, and now he's defiling them by having them eat something unclean. In one sense, things are going very badly in the story. And then it gets better, or worse, depending on your perspective, because Samson prepares a feast. Uh, the word here does not refer to a religious feast. Uh, the word here refers to a drinking party. This is customary for bridegrooms in those days. Uh, but there's a problem. He's hosting a drinking party as a Nazarite who's supposed to abstain from wine, but yet he's drinking wine with the guys. Once again, the hero is set on violating all the requirements of his Nazarite vow. <laughs> there's, there's only, at this point now, there's one left. <laughs> his hair. The whole scene appears fraught with tensions. So Samson, first, from a cultural standpoint, Samson starts off well. Oh, we're going to have a drinking party! And then the Philistines bring him 30 companions. That sound, seems like the neighborly response. Hey, you're, you know, you're going to be part of the family. Let's... It doesn't appear that the groom has any friends present besides his parents. And so, you know, sort of this, so the, but then things start to fall apart. Samson seems intent on humiliating his companions. And the terms that he sets for the riddle are not designed to make friends. 
Clothing's not cheap. Nowadays, you know, the idea of having that you might have 30 sets of garments, I mean, quite likely some of you, probably maybe all of us, <laughs> could have 30, 30 sets of clothing. Mean, that, that wouldn't be outlandish. In those days, you'll have a couple. You'll have your, your, the nice thing, something where you wear, you know, you're, you're not, and then, then last year's thing is what you'll wear as long as it lasts for the ordinary work stuff. So here, he's, he's, he's setting up a... They're going to each have to provide him with a, a garment, or he will provide th- 30 garments, one for each of them. So he's... You know, this is a great... In one sense, a great deal for them, although it's still an expensive deal if they lose. And he, then he sets them a, a, a riddle they have no hope of solving. Out of the eater, eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. I mean, nobody is going to guess... Honey in a lion, because after all, bees don't build honeycombs in cadavers. So, they got no hope here. So, after three days of frustration, they, they come to his wife and blackmail her. Get us the answer, or we'll burn you and your father's house with fire. They even insinuate that she's in on the plot. Have you, and this is a you plural, have you invited us here to impoverish us? Actually, the word they use is to dispossess us, which hints at what God is doing in the narrative. God's purpose is indeed to dispossess the Philistines and establish his people in the land. And so finally, they convince her to ask him. And so she begins to coax and wheedle Samson. He puts her off, suggests, I haven't even told my parents. But if you loved me, you'd tell me the answer. You hate me. You don't love me. How many men could resist that for four days? So he finally gives in. And so by sundown of the seventh day, Samson's riddle comes back to haunt him. What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Now, that's obviously the answer to the riddle. But there's a double meaning in this. What is sweeter than honey? The love of a woman. What is stronger than a lion? Well, remember, there's a guy here who killed the lion with his bare hands. And yet, even Samson is but putty in the hands of a woman. So, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Maybe that's both the same answer. (laughs) She is. Now, furious, Samson responds with another two-liner. If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. And, and just so you're clear, uh, calling your wife a heifer uh, is no kinder in Hebrew than it is in English. It's, it's the word egla, and you may recall early in the book this guy named Eglon, which wasn't his given name because what it means is basically a fat, greasy slob. So basically, yeah, when you're when you're calling your wife a heifer, yeah, yeah, this is not. There's a reason why her father thinks, oh, he's done with her. Then the spirit of the Lord rushes upon him, and he goes down to Ashkelon and strikes down thirty men of the town. This twenty miles away, he storms twenty twenty miles, slaughters thirty Philistines, gives their garments to his companions, and returned in anger to his father's house. Now, this may sound like a very strange, mighty deed. 
In fact, it, it sounds like petty vengeance. 30 dead Philistines. You could, on the one hand, wonder about the brutality of it, or if, if that doesn't bother you, then you could be puzzled at how small it is. This is a something that the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him to accomplish him to do. But think about what God promised Samson would do. He will begin to save his people from the Philistines. When God begins to work salvation, he often begins small. Think about your own life. When you've been in the middle of misery and trouble, God rarely brings radical deliverance immediately. He often begins with one small moment of promise. And so that you might say there's, there's small beginnings to the work of salvation that Samson begins. Although in Samson's case, it, everything seems to snowball. Everything seems to get worse. Since Samson doesn't seem interested in the girl, her father gave her to one of the companions instead. Now, the whole picture makes more sense if you see Samson as the embodiment of Israel. Samson, Israel, is trying to arrange a mixed marriage with pagans. Israel is trying to live at peace with the uncircumcised. But the pagan woman has betrayed her husband, just as the foreign wives have led Israel to worship other gods. And now the husband is calling his wife names, and the father-in-law has given his daughter to another man. And What's God doing? God will not allow his son to become like the nations. He will instead use the occasion to provoke a war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now, think about that when you're faced with times of misery and trouble. One of the things that God does is sometimes God uses trouble and difficulty and trial to provoke a war between you and sin. To help you see there's a problem here that we that and it's not necessarily that your sin was the reason for why you have the trouble, but that's where it is very often that God is provoking a war to get his people to fight against sin. But Samson doesn't realize yet what is to come. He thinks that cooling down a bit, he, uh, then he can come back to his wife. And he brings a young goat along as a present to soften her mood. I mean, <laughs> I did call her a heifer, so I probably need something to calm her down a bit. But he discovers instead that her father has given her to one of his companions. What a great friend. And hoping to placate Samson, he offers him her younger sister. She's more beautiful than she. <laughs> but one, thing's, one of the things that's really clear in, this, in our text is that nobody tells Samson how to find a wife. Enraged, he declares, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. And he starts off by, by catching these 300 foxes or, or jackals and ties them tail to tail in pairs and sets a torch between each pair of tails. I mean, <laughs> it probably would have been quicker to just do it himself. But um, in a sense, it's, it's just... It's, it's just, it's fitting. Samson, sort of the guerrilla tactics that Samson uses. Uh, and, 
I mean, who catches 300 foxes or jackals? I mean, Samson does. Um, And the result is massive destruction to the Philistines' grain and olive groves. Predictably, the Philistines are furious. But notice they don't go after Samson right away. They take it out on the Timnite and Samson's wife. They see that Samson was merely acting in response to his father-in-law, and so they burn the Timnite and his daughter with fire, thus bringing upon her the very fate she thought she had avoided by telling the answer to Samson's riddle. Now, this is a story of irony upon irony and doubling back on top of itself because the death of Samson's wife does not make him happy. He's like, what if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you and after that I will quit. This is the pattern of the Samson narrative. The Philistines keep trying to solve the problem of Samson, but every time they think they've solved it, they wind up making it worse. There's a lesson here. Sin is not a problem to be solved. You will never solve the problem of sin by solving it. The way you solve the problem of sin is by repenting. I mean, imagine what ha- I, mean, I don't know what happens, but imagine what happens if the Philistines come to Samson and say, we really screwed up. We, we have grievously sinned against you and we've, we've harmed you. And all. I mean, I'm, I'm not promising how Samson responds, but I can promise how God responds. Because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The problem of sin is not a problem that can be solved. It is a problem that must be repented of. Now, I can't help but point out that there is a time when the Philistines themselves do this. Fast forward to the story of David. After all, when you, anytime you read the story of Samson, Samson is said to be the one who will begin to save Israel from the Philistines. David is the one who finishes saving Israel from the Philistines. How does David finish the job? Well, the biggest, literally biggest point was when he took down Goliath. What did Goliath say? If you kill me, we will be your servants. We oftentimes, people oftentimes read that and say, oh, but the Philistines didn't really do that. David kills Samson, uh, kills Goliath rather. David kills Goliath and the Philistines still, they all run away or fight or Keep reading. Do you know, Goliath was from Gath and people from Gath are called Gittites. Have you ever noticed how many Gittites wind up in the retinue of David. There's like a half dozen of them that that are named. And if there's that many that are named, there's a whole lot more that were in their retinues. The Philistines, at least some of them, wound up repenting and following David. So just for a little bit of encouragement, since there's not much in the Samson story, for a little bit of encouragement, there was a time when the Philistines got the point and actually repented. Thanks be to God. In the days of Samson, not so much. After the great slaughter, he he flees to the cleft of the rock of Etam in, in Judah. And even as Samson hides from the Philistines, 
the people of Judah are hiding from the Philistines as well. They don't want conflict. The greatest warrior in Israel's history has arisen, but they don't follow him. All they want is to live in peace and avoid conflict with the Philistines. So when the Philistines come looking for Samson, the Judahites quickly fold and promise to go find him. They become the messengers and servants of the Philistines. The Philistines have come to do to him as he did to us. He has wreaked havoc on them. Now they wish to wreak havoc on him. So Judah sends 3,000 men to go get him. Part of it is, <laughs> the men of Judah, have they've heard about the Samson guy by now. Samson's going to be a tough guy to bring down. So, now they don't, they don't send the 3,000 against the Philistines. Gideon took down the Midianites of 300. Instead, they send the 3,000 to find the great Samson and hand him over to those who wish to kill him. They will sacrifice the divinely appointed leader in order to preserve the status quo. It's better for, for one man to die than for the nation. Samson is foreshadowing our Lord Jesus. And they ask Samson, what have you done to us? Why have you provoked the Philistines? His answer, I just did to them what they did to me. Notice the irony upon ironies. The Philistines have come to do to Samson as he did to them. But Samson merely did to the Philistines what they had done to him. When will the cycle of vengeance end? So Samson yields to the Judahites, but only on the promise that they won't kill him. Instead, they bind him with new ropes. They're not flimsy old ropes. They're good, strong new ropes. And they hand him over to the Philistines. And when the Philistines see him, they come shouting. But the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him again. And the ropes become as flax that has caught fire. His bonds melt off his hands. And he found a, a fresh jawbone of a donkey. And fresh suggests that he's again breaking his Nazarite vow by touching dead things. And with it, he slaughters a thousand men. Shamgar had killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad in chapter 3, and now Samson, with a jawbone of a donkey, kills a thousand men. Now, uh, Sam, Samson's little song here is clever, since uh, the word donkey and the word heap are spelled the same in Hebrew. Uh, so he says, you know, with the jawbone of a donkey, donkeys upon donkeys... <laughs> or heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. And he, he throws away the, the, the jawbone, and, and the place winds up getting called Ramoth Lehi, Hill of the Jawbone. What is, what is Jawbone Hill? It's a hill where the battle takes place. It's a hill of a heap of Philistine bodies. Dale Ralph Davis appreciates the humor of our storyteller. He says the Philistines triumphantly answer Samson's riddle. They win the bet and lose 30 fellow citizens. Does everything seem peaceful in Timnah? Samson's foxy antic will ensure that the Philistine Cooperative Association's elevators will be near empty of grain. No, it's not funny for the foxes, but looking at the episode in general, I'm sure an Israelite would find it at least mildly humorous. 
or the Philistines are cocksure they have their foe at their mercy until Samson is suddenly beating sense into their heads with an ass's dentures. Our storyteller wants you to laugh because it's getting ridiculous. Now, Samson was very thirsty and he called upon the Lord. So this is where... I mean, in spite of all the failings and foibles, he at least knows who to call upon. He calls upon Yahweh. (laughs) And he says, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? By driving him to his to thirst, he, he, God forces Samson to acknowledge that the Lord is the author of this great salvation. There's a way in which Samson is replaying the part of Israel in the wilderness. After the great redemption at the Red Sea, Israel grumbled about not having water. Jonah will be put in a similar situation, parched by the sun. Elijah will be thirsty in the wilderness. But Samson plays the part perfectly. He is so focused on himself, and he does not truly appreciate the truly marvelous thing. He acts like Israel before him, or like Jonah after him. Elijah is the one who gets it, but like Israel before him, like Jonah after him, Samson grumbles and murmurs, fearing that he will fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. Of course, if all had gone according to his plans, he would be married to a Philistine woman by now. But... God heard his voice and split open the hollow place at Lehi and water came out from it and he drank and his spirit returned and he revived. Therefore he called it En Hakore, the spring of him who called. Now, when Hagar, the Egyptian, experienced a similar blessing, she called the spring the well of the living one who sees me. Samson calls this well after himself, the well of the one who called. Again, we're seeing some things aren't the way they should be. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. Notice the way it's put. The earlier judges delivered their people from their enemies and then judged Israel in peace. But Samson never finishes the job. He judges Israel in the days of the Philistines. Rather than fight the Philistines at first, he tries to marry one. But God uses that very occasion to set Samson on his course. But even as he walks down that course, he he tries to fit into the the culture of the dominant power of the age. Of course, that just shows how he's like his people. The Judahites are no better. They have made peace with the Philistines. They are, in, in one sense, more pious than he, but they want to live with the peace with the Philistines as well. They don't want to have anything to do with their Philistine overlords, so they will hand Samson over to them rather than fight. It's only when King David finishes the job that the reign of God will be reasserted over his people. But in a sense, unwittingly, Samson does point us forward to Christ. He is the great hero who embodies the history of Israel in all sorts of flawed ways. He points forward to the one who would flawlessly embody Israel. That's partly why we sang Psalm 45 and the, the, you might say, the true wedding song of the Son of God earlier. Because we need a king 
but not just any old king. We need a king who will seek not what is right in his own eyes, but one who will seek what is right in God's eyes. And not a king who merely does what is right alone by himself, but one who will lead us to do what is right in God's eyes, one who will do the, what is right and bring us to God. So in one sense you could say Samson is an example of how to live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, but not a great example. The great example is our Lord Jesus, because Jesus is the one who was what Israel was called to be. He was a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in himself, and because of that, because we are joined to him, we are become, becoming a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And that means that we now mediate the blessings of Christ to those around us. But as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 2, mediating the blessings of Christ has two effects. Listen to how Paul says this. 2 Corinthians 2, 14-16 But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. It's worth remembering that to, to some we will smell like life to others, we will smell like death. That just that we are, as we mediate the blessings of God to the nations, there are some who will reject that. And there's nothing you can do about that. And in fact, that's, if, if they don't like the smell of life, that's not your problem. The key is, you're supposed to be the aroma of Christ. To, to God. That's what we're, that's where, as we recognize that, now, if you think about what is the aroma of Christ? Well, Christ was, the, the, the language of aroma is that of a, uh, the language here used of the triumphal procession, the fragrance of the knowledge of Him, that this is, this is, when the king comes marching in triumphal procession, sort of this aroma is going to is going to smell great to those who are part of the the victory procession, but to those who are perishing, it will be the smell of death, and that's where, as Samson reminds us of how Christ is the one who fully and finally succeeds where Israel failed and we are called to walk in him. So let's ask God to help us. Father, help us because we are helpless without your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you have not left us in our sin and misery. You have not left us to perish, but you sent your son who came in our flesh and who paid the price in his own death, who accomplished salvation for us and who won the great victory, and who now has brought us to you. Help us to live as those who belong to Jesus. Help us to spread the fragrance of, of the knowledge of you everywhere, to be the aroma of Christ to you 
among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Help us to, to live as that fragrance that those around us may smell the glory of Jesus in, in our lives and may see in us and hear from us the, 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 good, news, the good news of, of Jesus. Lord, have mercy. Call those who are, who are straying back to yourself. Call those who are perishing to newness of life. May your word and your spirit accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it, that it may bring the good news of Jesus to the nations. Help us, Lord, to trust you and to believe you and to, and to walk before you day by day in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in each place where you put us, in each context where we find ourselves. Help us to, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, that we might hold fast to the gospel of our Savior. And as we come to this, your table, we pray that you would now nourish and strengthen us with the body and blood of your dear Son, that we might walk as those who are belonging to Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen.